Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast that can tell you a lot about the work and life of Shirley Chisholm and also give you an up-to-date account on where the Wicked musical movie is in filming. I just saw pictures the other day. I am very, very excited with for Ariana Grande and Cynthia and Revo. This is going to be so fun. I'm Dr. Adrian Freerbenik. I'm your host. In case you're hearing this for the first time, I am a real-life college professor of sociology, and I created this podcast to combine my two loves, pop culture, and the impact it has on our lives. Today I'm talking to Dr. Dara Nick Stevenson, and I don't really want to give a big intro um, because I think this conversation stands on its own, and Dara does a really nice job of explaining their own work and research and place in place in the field that she is working on. I will say that uh, we're going to talk about the Kambahi River Collective, and Dara runs a an Instagram account called Since Kambahi that I have followed for for quite some time. Uh, that's aimed at social justice and aimed at understanding how inequity uh, is embedded into our system, but also what can be done about it. So I really want Dara to explain what the Kambahi River Collective is and give you that history of it. Um, So I'm not going to do it. But I will say that this conversation is quite possibly one of my favorite of the podcasts that I've recorded for you all. And I am just delighted that Dr. Dara Nick Stevenson spent time with me <laughs> and <laughs> and was uh, interested enough in this project to participate. So without any further ado, I would like to share my conversation with Dr. Dara Nick Stevenson. My name is Dr. Dara Nick Stevenson, and my pronouns are she, they. I am fine with being referred to as Dr. Nix. I'm also fine with being referred to as Dara. My very first teaching job for three years, I worked at a high school that allowed students to call teachers by their first name. And so that's something that has always left me with the sense of leaning into that to uh, ultimately share my power with students. I currently am coming off of a 24 year career of teaching primarily high school science for 20 of those 24 years and middle school for four of those 24 years. I'm currently working as a program manager for Guilford Green Foundation and LGBTQ Center located here in Greensboro, North Carolina. My work uh, research background is in educational studies with a concentration in women, gender and sexuality studies. I get really excited about uh, disaster studies. I like (laughs) looking at disasters across human history, hurricanes, tornadoes, Mm -hmm. things of that sort, and looking at how social institutions and social structures can be improved or built back better to help people to allow their full humanity to show up. And so that's a wide variety from science to social justice to disaster studies, but Okay, so let me just start with basic questions, and then we can sort of talk as we um, build on that. So just real basic, can you talk about what the collective is and why it was started and the foundations of it and all of that stuff? Yes, my understanding of the Kambahi River Collective 
is that it originally was started in 1968, Boston, Massachusetts area because of the murder, unsolved murder, potential sexual assault. I don't know what the final outcome of that investigation was of black women who were disappeared and seemingly forgotten. And I really think that the current day Me Too and Me Too movement, hashtag Me Too movement, owes you know some of its beginnings to that collective of Black women who really were alerting local and national folk to the disappearance of women, Black women in particular, and why we should care. And its namesake, it takes from the Combahee River mm-hmm. in South Carolina, which is factually documented and noted in history as the river in that portion of the United States that Harriet Tubman used to guide slaves from enslavement to freedom as she looked to the North Star as a compass. Mm -hmm. And so that is a heavy load. And several of the members of the Kambahi River Collective are still alive and with this, notably among them, Barbara Smith. And I think that as a descendant of Black women, Black women from the African diaspora whose names I do not know, but tracing my matrilineal descent from five generations back removed from enslavement, I've always walked in this world with this idea that to whom much is given, much is required and that I'm free, you know, and I'm seen in ways because of the work that's been done by people that far exceeded me and even my bloodlines. And so as dispositions and ideologies in the 21st century continue to invisibilize and disappear Black women, the Kambahi River Collective Statement is more important to me now than it was when I was originally introduced to it. And I was introduced to it in 1990 when I took an introduction to women's studies course that was taught by Professor Ann Ducille at Wesleyan University. And uh, we had several books on our reading list, on our syllabus, one of which was uh, Homegirls, a Black Feminist Anthology. And so that's where I first read it. Um, one of the books on the syllabus was this bridge called My Back, mm-hmm. Writings by a Radical Women of Color, uh, Making Face, Making Soul, Hacienda Claras, um, you know, lots of things that that reference that. And it just made sense for me to continue to hold on to that as I move forward in my own journey, my own uh, schooling to become a professional, 
academic as well as just in life as a black woman. And anytime I have an opportunity to share it or to talk about it, I jump at the opportunity mm-hmm. because I think it's a beacon of light that all of us black girls and black women need in this world in this day and time to remember, you know, who we are and whose we are. Is that why you started the Instagram? That was was partially why I started it. You know, my circle of influence, you know, I'm not I'm not a lover of social media. I'm not a hater of social media, but I got <laughs> on to social media because my circle of influence convinced me that in order to be relevant with the things that I was pursuing and studying and my aspirational desires that I needed to to have a social media presence and I am coming off of 24 years as a K through 12 teacher 20 of which were spent in high school and four in middle school and as I was thinking about this proposition right and what I would call myself, at no point in time was I wanting to go under my name because there are clear and distinct policies about teachers not interacting across social media sites with their students. And and I knew that my name being distinctive as it was that I would be found, but I did want to cross over into at the time was a new world for me and learn what it had to offer. And so the idea to call myself this was born. And, you know, I thought about what social media space could mean for me and why I should use it. And the only salient reason I could come to was I need to use my voice in the service of others. Mm-hmm. And so if I was not going to go by my birth name, what name could I go by that would lead with the intentionality of lending my voice in service to others? And being very much uh, pro-education, education access equity, and all of the things, I knew that this would be the way to go. And so that is why I did name my Facebook page my actual profile page is my name separated by a space since and then Kambahi. And then I have a Facebook page that is the whole name. And I have a Twitter as well as I have an Instagram and I have my domain as such. So I've paid for all the things and I paid for the things mm-hmm. long before I knew what weight and opportunity I carried. Um, It came with me designing a logo that, well, two logos, actually. I hired a graphic artist to design two logos for me that I actually registered with the U.S. Federal Trade and Copyright Commission. Wow. Because I, I want... When I'm gone, my digital footprint to continue to tell the story. So I I put a lot of thought into this. And I actually thought that when 
I finally decided to leave the classroom and I and I've made that decision within this past six months that I'm I'm done with the, the traditional K through 12 classroom and now I'm more in a role as a community educator. Currently I'm working for a local LGBTQ center and philanthropic foundation that uses philanthropy and community engagement to serve the LGBTQ plus community. And so I've oversight of a number of programs with them as program manager. And so I'm wearing my education hat while at the same time pulling on my teacher brain and skill set, right? And still being able to explore intersections of identities and use those platforms to support that work. So having a social media profile footprint has never been about me. It's been about elevating and lifting up the, up the work that community members are doing mm-hmm. in service to what a, since, what a Kambahi River Collective did and are still doing and giving. Yeah. I have to say, though, the thing about your Instagram and it comes across talking to you is that it's very thoughtful. It's very culture, very carefully curated and it's very intentional, the stuff that you're putting up there. And I, I'm grasping talking to you that that's you, like, that's just your way of looking at the world. And um, so if, if it helped, it, it totally comes across. Well, thank you. you. I I appreciate that. And I have always seen everything as an opportunity for learning. And I believe that this collective taught me even before I knew that, you know, there was a Apollo Freire in the world who says mm-hmm. that, you know, everything is text, you know, and you read the world like you read the word. Mm-hmm. I always thought that, you know, this collective of women taught me ultimately that every opportunity where you plant your feet is an opportunity to use that as text to make, you know, impactful, influential change in the world. And so I have had, (laughs) I've had some smart young people, you know, that I've had the privilege to teach over the years and they have found me on social media with the few pictures of myself that I post, they have found me. And I've had to so many students and (laughs) I said, finally, I said, okay, I'm going to get a LinkedIn account so that when you all graduate from high school or college or what have you, and you want to reach out and see how your old teacher is doing, you may set up your own LinkedIn account because that's an incentive for you to have a digital resume and then you can be my friend, you know? So that's always been my thing. with students, And so it's nice, you know, to have a LinkedIn and I find myself checking that out more because I'm, I've, I've been, I've taught long enough that, you know, students I've had are graduating from medical school and law school and college and now they have mm-hmm. their own kids and their own kids are in school and all this. And it's just wonderful to see, you know. Um, so you mentioned me, too, and I see Tarana Burke's book behind mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Um, I see all of that as, as cyclical to what you're doing or what um, Kambahi did. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about the connection you see between the movements that are happening now and how that's sort of been? Yeah, so connected? I think that we can even go back as um, recent as 
or as far back as the civil rights, late 60s civil rights movement, paralleling the time of the National Women's Movement, National Organization for Women coming into being and uh, the invisibility of the role of black women in the civil rights movement, even though mm-hmm. they were really at the at the forefront, right? I'm thinking about women like uh, Fannie Lou Hamer mm-hmm. and this woman who did this amazing work um, while being a factory laborer, mm-hmm. but who, you know, managed to hold down, you know, extremely, um, physically challenging, laborious work while then, you know, holding meetings, you know, in the evening, traveling across the South, you know, holding potential union meetings and still managing to make presence known that, you know, women, Black women have something to say, right? Mm -hmm. But are not as, as held in high esteem or regard. Um, Also thinking about um, during that time, uh, people like Bayard Rustin, Mm -hmm. who is a Black gay man, was also invisibilized, you know, but though he is the architect of the blueprint of the March on Washington, you know, uh, thinking about, you know, even Coretta Scott King, and then knowing that, you know, she marched lockstep, but, you know, she was a force behind in front and you know on either side thinking about um you know the prominence that uh Gloria Steinem had you know in ultimately the first uh iterations of you know pushing forth the equal rights amendment and you know being very vocal but knowing all of the black women that she had beside her who uh were doing the work and actually legitimizing the work that she could do because in order for her to mm-hmm. really be able to exercise the privilege to travel across the United States during that time as a white woman, as a white feminist mm-hmm. and talk to black women, women of color, period, you know, her message was only legitimized because she had a black woman traveling with her. Right. Right. She just died too. And she just passed a couple yeah. weeks ago. Yeah. And so we're talking about Flo um, um, Kennedy. No, not Flo. Flo was another one. Flo was um, the other, another one. Yeah. Yes, her name escapes me, and I'm apologizing. I know. I see the picture of them standing right. next to each other right. in my holding head, holding their fist up. Yeah. Yeah. I'll look I it should. up and I'll include it later, and we'll sound super I, smart. Don't worry. I should know that because <laughs> I see the picture, right? But here's yeah. the thing: the things that come to me most as an adult woman are the things that were repeated in my early education, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a failing of my early education that, you know, I don't remember that name as much as I do the name Thomas Jefferson, right? Yes. <laughs> that, you know, it's so true. That I live with, right? I won't forget Thomas Jefferson. 100%, name. 100%. You know, but why am I not, you know? So in any event, I think that work is, a touchstone moment from the Kambahi River Collective, as well as coming um, full circle into the work that 
Tarana Burke has done and is doing. And I think what Tarana Burke's work has done is, of course, you had these women who were making Black women visible, right? Yep. Harkening back to the Combined River Collective like Barbara Smith and these wonderful publications that came out in the 1970s and 80s because Barbara and her sister started the Kitchen Table Press that operated out of uh, Latham, New York. Tarana Burke gave articulation Mm -hmm. to what is being seen. How do we how do we talk about this, right? Because I do think that in terms of identity politics, intersectionalities of identities, that the African-American community, while we acknowledge things more willingly uh, in, in almost 2023 than we did in 1993, 1983, 1973, how we talk about things, particularly sexual assault Mm -hmm. and violence against women is still hugely problematic. Mm -hmm. So what I appreciate about Burke and the Me Too movement beyond making it visible is here we have a model of someone and, and her cohort of someone who have given us language yep. that allows us to acknowledge what has happened to us and to then carry forth conversations where we can ask problem posing questions that will allow us to arrive at new answers. So these same cycles of violence and assault will not continue to happen. I also um, think, go ahead. Oh, no, no, keep, keep going. I, I was going to say, I also see elements of the Kambahi River Collective and the Black Power Movement, mm-hmm. the Black Lives Matter Movement. Mm-hmm. I see elements of it also in the National Women's Studies Association, which has still work to do, but has done an intentional job of creating caucuses within the larger organization mm-hmm. where the concerns of Black women of all stripes are mm-hmm. continuing to be lifted up and heard. So those are just some of the examples I see. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Black Lives Matter because I see Patrice, Patrice's book behind you too. Um, uh, Dorothy Pittman Hughes is the, the yes. woman who passed. And yes. I, now that we've said that, I'm going to link to some info on her on this okay. website for this because she really does need to be someone that is spoken about in the same breath as Gloria Steinem because they right. were they were parallel to right. the work they were doing. Um, I guess... I'm wondering, because you spoke about social, I think you and I sit in social media in the same sort of place where I'm not 100% great with it. And I, and I don't necessarily 100% hop on board and think this is, you know, a wonderful thing, because I see all of the issues with it, Mm -hmm. and all Mm -hmm. of the damage it can do. At Mm -hmm. the same time, 
I am living in a society where it's, it's going to, it's just necessary. Like you just, you know, right. I publish books. I can't not have social media um, to talk about the things I've done. Um, and I also think there's a lot of benefits to it that kind of get overshadowed with the, the negatives. So I'm curious, what have you learned from operating um, the, the Instagram page and um, using social media as a place for activism? What have you taken away from that? Or if there's anything that's that stood out in the process of doing it that kind of took you by surprise or um, stands out so, in your head? I think one of the joys I find in social media, if I can start there first, is that it provides a space for me to memorialize thinkers mm -hmm. who have taught me so much, mm -hmm. whose historical memory is still teaching me and giving me lessons to learn from in order to still wake up every day and continue to do the work. Mm -hmm. It provides a space and a site for young people to find accurate information where they won't be gaslit mm -hmm. and confirm whatever it is that they come open to needing confirmation and affirmation about. Mm -hmm. I do believe that it is helpful for capturing breaking news in the essence in a very accessible way. I think that leaning on my visual learning type of brain, I, I, I lead with visual learning and auditory learning. Me too. Yeah. You know, Howard Gardner gave us the multiple intelligences, right? And so I feel that in times where I cannot attend to the broadcast media, and for me, I would say since uh, former President Trump got elected, that's been the continuum of time. I've been in a hamster wheel of not being able to attend to broadcast media mm -hmm. because I think that that presence and that infusion of that person into the American media scene has forever changed American media, print, social, and broadcast for the worst, right? Yep. So if I can attend to, you know, a CBS Morning app or a 60 minutes, you know, stream on my Instagram feed, I can get the news that I need as opposed to sitting and watching the two hour morning yes. segment. Yes. And so that I find very helpful and uh, keeping me putting one foot in front of the other and having fact-based news. Those things I really like. I question about social media the whole notion of it giving everyone deserving or not access to instant celebrity, pretend celebrity. Mm -hmm. That I really do not like because I feel what that has done, particularly on platforms like Instagram owned by Meta is every other post is an ad. Yes. And it's not necessarily an ad that is worthy of being an ad, but because you have now the privilege and the access to boost your post for monetary gain, you can be advertising a pencil or you can be advertising, you know, the 200 
$1,000 pair of shoes, or you can be advertising, isn't my fluffy dog cute? Isn't my cat cute? I still have to filter that. And it mm-hmm. it has, I think, the side effect, the unintended consequence of, I find myself now spending most of my streaming time for the time that I am on social media, blocking and deleting. Yeah. So there's not an enjoyment, right, right. there. Um, have you followed or have you seen Jamila Jamil's stuff on social media? Yes, I do follow them. She does a great job of saying how she cleaned out her feed so that she would no longer see like diet pills and weight loss stuff. And she said, basically now all she does is see like videos of animals because that's what she wants to do. Um, One of the assignments I do with my students is we sit down and we um, look at real news and fake news. Mm -hmm. So the the websites that are just completely created from like Breitbart and that kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, Because I see media literacy as like, if not the number one, a really, really high tier piece of education that needs to happen. um, I couldn't agree more. I spent time as a science educator for the time I taught high school, prioritizing media literacy being taught in science. So, you know, we are right there together with that. As a middle school teacher, I had the opportunity to teach outside of science. I still taught science, but I also taught math. I taught social studies and I taught English language arts or ELA. But at the top of everything, I centered teaching media literacy because Generation Z, absolute, absolute digital natives, no consciousness outside of this world. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I can't overestimate <laughs> the importance for K through graduate school and really right now pre-K through mm-hmm graduate school educators and whatever content arena they are in centering teaching media literacy. I could not agree more. I even think that communication studies, I was having a thought uh, about this yesterday as I was having a conversation with the communications manager at my job and she was helping me to clean up some graphics that I'm getting ready to post. And I thought, you know, I knew what it was to be a social media manager. And now I have oversight of my jobs, media channels, social media channels, in addition to my own. Um, And just things that have to look for. And as I see job postings about hiring social media content managers in this time, the pay rate for those jobs is huge Mm -hmm. on the level of doctors and lawyers Mm -hmm. and I had no idea Mm -hmm. how and the why those positions would become so prominently important but now I know you know Mm -hmm. and I think what you were saying earlier is very true that the benefit of it is it gives us the opportunity to lift up the voices of people that may not have had Mm -hmm. it had 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 that opportunity before, whether they're here or not, whether they they're long gone or or not. Um, Coretta Scott King, I think, is a really good example of people look at Martin Luther King Jr. and, of course, wonderful, did great things, 
but she was there every step of the way. And she was there getting him out of jail. She was taking care of their family while things were scary and while people were calling their home. I mean, her place in all of it is not as forgotten as other historical figures because she was still married mm -hmm. to this very powerful person. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it, it, it using social media as a place to resurrect stories like hers, I think is what makes it powerful. I, I agree. I could not agree more. And I do, interestingly enough, you bring Coretta Scott King up. I do follow the King Center. Mm -hmm. And that is predominantly what Bernice King does with that mm -hmm. site is to lift up the work that her mom did as much as her father did, because that's the history that we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of that, I read in our first year of online COVID pandemic teaching, I read with my seventh and eighth graders, the book, The Lies My Teacher Told Me. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'd always wanted to teach that book. And I thought that this was a good time to introduce them to that book. The young adult version was just seeing the bombardment of the Trump era administration and how they were speaking about COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And so there's a couple chapters in that book about the mythologization of history, right? And that we have to actually ask questions. Yep. We have to initiate yep. those questions if we're gonna get beyond those mythologies because whole generations carry those mythologies forward and then they become intergenerational mythologies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my students, they were really impacted by learning about that because they could take that and they could see, oh my word, this president is, you know, what he's doing is he's, you know, he's planting seeds for how COVID is going to be. Talking. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Into, the, into perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And we have to recognize this now. And so that was a breath of fresh air for me, I say. And I was unusual with this group of kids because I got them in my tutelage when they were fifth graders and I looped with them until they yeah. were eighth grade had the same group of students for four years. Mm -hmm. So I was able to pick them up where I left them. And they were just making connections about, you know, historical myths from one thing. It didn't matter what we were talking about. They instantly had this analysis. They were like, well, this does not sound right. And a few of them, before they graduated from ninth grade, for, uh, from eighth grade to go to ninth grade, they told me, you know, we're going to have to fix this, right? What's happened with this presidency. And the only way that we can do that is if we get the voting age lowered to 16. Mm. Wow. And so knowing that level of critical consciousness that resided in the minds of those young people. Yep. Reaffirmed for me that I selected the right reading material, mm -hmm. but that also seeds were planted that they were going to do intentional work with it to push against what is fake information, yep. fake news, and just all of the fakeness of the media world. And so that's why I say we have an obligation as teachers, educators, community educators, lay educators, to really heighten awareness and offer vocabulary 
that's accessible to young people so that they can do their work and tear yeah. it down to build it back up the way it should be, you know? I can't think of a better way to end this conversation except that I could talk to you for several hours and be perfectly happy. So, <laughs> Well, I've enjoyed talking to you too. And you've definitely given me some things to think about that, you know, I need to rehearse and revisit and definitely inspiring me into 2023. So it's been great. And I look forward to continued connections and future conversations. And me too. Gratitude to your students for being willing to listen to this. Thank you so much for listening. You can find more episodes of Most Popular on iTunes and SoundCloud. More information, including additional resources for educators, can be found on my website, adriantrier-beanick.com. The website is listed in episode notes, so you don't have to learn how to spell my name. And I am on Instagram at at dr.adrienetb. That's at dr.adrienetb. As always, thank you so much to my students for the encouragement to keep making these episodes, and I will see you next time.